Welcome to Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler. Just a reminder, as you'll be hearing at the beginning of a few of these shows, if you like this podcast, please rate it five stars on whatever podcast app you are listening to. The rating increases visibility to other people who are looking for this kind of podcast. And searching for this gets a lot easier. Any positive reviews that you can leave on your podcast app are greatly appreciated. Every once in a while, you get to get in a conversation with someone where the time flies, you laugh a lot, you listen a lot, and by the time the conversation's over, you're slightly disappointed, actually, but you have also thoroughly enjoyed yourself. Well, that's what happened in the podcast that you're about to listen to. Christopher Knoxon, as you'll hear, is an author and a bit of an artist, and as I found him to be, a deeply thoughtful guy. Since this is a podcast, though, about conversations and the power of conversations, Ironically, this podcast, this conversation, ended up not being about conversations at all. But I found, as I hope you will find, his thoughts on politics, and at the end of the podcast, on raising kids, to end up to not only be refreshing, but very thought-provoking. I hope you'll hear that in this podcast with Chris Knoxon. Do you know the most Jewish people begin sentences with the word so? So. So, <laughs> we're not going to do that today. I'm going to begin by providing some context, which perhaps I should have provided in a couple earlier episodes that I've done this show. I've said in these previous tapings, and who knows where they'll come in in terms of how they're presented, but I've said that Everybody's going to get the same opening question. Uh, so uh, I am here with Christopher Knoxon, uh, a gentleman I consider a friend. Uh, and as you will hopefully find out, uh, I got really good feelings this is going to be interesting in many ways. So that's why I talked Chris into doing this. But the key question that I've decided to start every podcast with um, has a reason behind it. And the reason is probably the toughest speech setting that I've ever had to present at was when Marissa, she was then uh, nine, uh, her teacher asked me to come to class to present to 35 fourth and fifth graders about how to give a speech and how to communicate better. And that trick was that it was right after recess. So I knew I was up against it. So in they come and there's 35 sweaty, you know, you know what that smells like when fourth graders sweat, boy or girl, and they're all in this room. And I'm thinking, what's the snappy introduction to get their attention? And I said, I want everybody to think for just a second. The room got quiet. It's great. What do you want to be when you grow up? And they all went around. One girl literally wanted to be an artist, a doctor, an actress, and a 
psychiatrist or something. And the point I wanted to make with them, the point that underpins my work, is that from a young age, communication from a very young age, communication makes a huge difference. And my point to those kids was that the, uh, no matter what answer they gave me, communication was going to be important. So now I ask my grown-up friends in these settings, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? And how, we'll, we'll take it from after you right. give the answer. I, the, the thing I remember most was wanting to be a tap dancing brain surgeon. I told my mom when she asked me, I was really into Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly movies. And, but I, I knew that that was a little bit of a frivolous desire. Felt like it was. The tap dancing. Tap dancing. I didn't actually dance. You didn't? No, no, not at all. But they did. But, right. but they did on TV, and I thought that looked amazing, and they were super elegant and great. But I also knew that it would be, it would be more um, serious and more helpful to the world to be a brain surgeon. So that's what I said when adults would ask me. I feel like that's a thing, because I have little kids, right? I have an 11-year-old, and then a 15-year-old, and a 17-year-old, so they're not so little anymore. But they, the number of times that adults ask them what they want to be when they grow up, um, typically elicits like a, I don't know, you right. know, I'm a kid. There's very few kids who can answer that with any kind of precision right. or, um, and it changed, changed as I got older. Right. Before we, before we leave the answer though, and this has nothing to do with communication, you learned about tap dancing from Astaire and Gene Kelly. Right. Elegant, beautiful as it was. Cool. Right. Very cool. Super and they said cool. Ginger Rogers was even better because she had to do it with, Heels on, right? Going backwards. However, going backwards, exactly. However, where'd you pick up the brain surgery thing? Oh, I don't know. That's a good See question. Someone, I mean, I, I must have seen it on TV. You know, it just seemed like the most dangerous, noble, kind of yeah. smart profession you could possibly have. Risky. Yeah. yeah. Intellectual. Good to look good in the white jacket. Good in the white jacket. Exactly. And you know, people putting their lives in your exactly. hands. So, so walk me through then. Uh, sure enough communication would follow you through tap dancing. You'd have to listen to your choreographer uh, and uh, pay attention. Obviously, in brain surgery, there'll be a couple shows here in the future with doctors of some uh, notoriety who will talk about the importance of communication. But tell me where you went from there, right? In terms of what appealed to you, what you felt you wanted to do with your life. Um, my dad was a documentary filmmaker, did, uh, nature documentaries for National Geographic, uh, all those Sunday specials from the seventies and eighties. And he would go off on these great adventures. Um, my folks split up when I was pretty young. And so he was sort of a mythic figure to me mm. in any case. And he'd go off to Africa to be with, you know, uh, elephants or Dr. Leakey or, you know, chasing sharks and, then he'd come back and he'd have these movies and all my friends saw them and it was pretty exciting and uh, heroic. And so I knew I wanted to do something like that, something where I could go out into the world and see stuff and get paid to do it. Um, and then I remember watching Lou Grant and thinking, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be in a newsroom. Okay. Be so good. I decided pretty early, I think in elementary school, that I was going to be a journalist Got it. Uh, and did student newspapers and 
did that all through college um, and set out to to be a reporter. Got it. So when people are standing at a, we're now to present day, and people are standing at a party, um, like we were the other night, I happen to know what, yeah. what you did, but when people ask what you do now, how do you describe your world? Now, I mean, I'm in really a position of flux, because for years I would just say I was a writer. Um, I went from doing journalism to writing books, and uh, wrote a nonfiction book based on an article that I'd written for the New York Times and then wrote a novel. And then uh, while writing the novel, was doing a lot of drawing and have gotten more and more interested in how words and pictures can work together and have been doing these kind of graphic essays since then. So now I find myself drawing as much as I am writing. And mm-hmm. so I'm a graphic essayist. Yeah. I'm a, um, you know, I don't think I'm a graphic novelist because I don't do sort of comic form. But um, words and pictures. Yeah. Illo writer. I don't know what to call myself anymore. <laughs> so what? where did, can you trace back as we've, in an elementary way, tried to do it today, uh, can you trace back where the art stuff, the, the, the sketching Well, I told you from? about my, my dad. His mom was a painter and um, lived in Cape Cod in this like A-frame cabin in the woods that... She was divorced really early at a time when women weren't getting divorced that often. And uh, she never remarried and taught painting and did music in her basement and uh, accumulated a pretty astonishing body of work by the time she was 84. I worked at the first job uh, in newspapers was on Cape Cod, and I got to spend a lot of time with her. And she was super inspiring to me. Um, At the same time, my mom was a painter, Um, until she got into museum curating and did a lot of other work in education. But so I've always been sort of surrounded by and interested by visual art, but never went to art school, never took an art class, Um, was just a doodler. Right. And as I was writing my novel, I I was drawing in the margins, writing longhand, and I ended up using a lot of those drawings in the actual text. Um, I, every chapter had a little spot illustration at the beginning, and we ended up publishing those. And then I found that that was more exciting to me than a lot of the text. Right. So now huh. I'm just, that's beginning to take over. So which, which book was that? The one? Plus one. Plus one. And remind, remind me and the listeners. Plus this. one is a novel about um, householding men and uh, sort of breadwinning women. So it's about families when the traditional roles get reversed. It's based loosely but pretty faithfully on my own life. I'm married to Genji Kohan, who created the show Orange is the New Black and Weeds. And when her TV career kind of took off, I was working uh, in communications for Mike Milken, Mm -hmm. um, doing uh, charity work for his cancer stuff. And... Um, pretty quickly after her, she sold her first pilot and uh, things started to sort of rev up, realized that the money that I was making in nonprofits really wasn't a factor anymore. So I kind of off-ramped and started taking my, and we started having kids and mm-hmm. I became kind of a householder. I was still writing, but I was much more, much more involved in our family's life. Right. Um, and I just found that to be a really fascinating dynamic. And I wanted, to, I knew there was comic and crazy kind of, uh, story possibilities. Yep. Um, started to write it in essay form as a journalist, and I knew how to do that, and realized that um, our own lives were pretty boring, uh, and wanted to sort of ask myself, what if I did all these things that I knew would kind of be bad for my life? Mm-hmm. 
So what would it be like if I got into reality television because a friend told me it would um, be amazing? Or what if I had the affair with the woman who was interested in getting to my wife? Or what if I... So I just kind of like followed... I had my kind of midlife crisis on the page so I wouldn't have to have it in real life. With, with the sketches With the well. text. And then as right. I was writing the text, right. every chapter had some kind of symbolic object at the center. The first chapter is about a guy who goes to the Emmys with his wife and she buys him the tux and some shoes and they go to the the red carpet. And as he's walking the red carpet, his shoes fall apart. Literally, the soles come off. And he asks his wife, what's the deal with the shoes? And she she tells him that she bought the shoes at the county morgue thrift shop. Um, because they're a real bargain. This actually happened to me and Chenji. And uh, they tape up the shoes with some gaffer's tape, and he goes in. Um, this really happened, and in, I just knew it was an amazing story. Um, and so I called the chapter Dead Man's Shoes, right? So this guy is in this moment of of learning to be arm candy, learning to be the plus one to this powerful woman, and literally his shoes fall apart. In real life, my wife actually was the one who ran off to find the gaffer to tape up the shoes. Um, in the book, it it, it's changed because, um, for a lot of reasons, but I needed to introduce a character who would sort of guide him into this world of men, uh, attached to women who have careers and incomes that far surpass their own. So he's kind of led into this world by a guy who appears out of the crowd named Huck, who, um, is totally familiar. He's the husband of the star of the woman's show. Um, and she's, he sort of becomes the, the, um, spiritual father who leads him into this world of, of these kind of layabout guys. And that's what you... And that's what I wrote. What so wrote. anyway, uh, the original title of that chapter was Dead Man's Shoes, but right. I was drawing shoes as I was writing this chapter. Right. And then I ended up using the drawings in the text instead of the title. So now every chapter has a drawing instead of the word, and you kind of come across that image in the text. As you go. As you go. So... Have you received from people who have who have looked at your work, this combination, this hybrid of words and pictures that you've created, have you received and, and had conversations uh, based on how people either did or didn't experience the work differently as a result of the pictures? A hundred percent. I mean, that's been the, the thing that's really motivated me to keep going because when I was a journalist and even in my, you know, foray into fiction. Um, the only thing I really wanted to do when I started off to write the book, I, you know, you never know with publishing and fiction and, and, uh, and books are such a hard business to be in. You really have to do it because you're obsessed with the world that you're creating. Um, and I am obsessed with fiction and I love to read books and literature is super important to me. But when I really boiled it down, like was, was I trying to make a bestseller? Was I trying to get a book deal? Was I trying to write another book? What was I trying to do? And mm-hmm. I had to really think deeply about what my goal was. And my goal really was that someone I respected and liked would come to me and say, this was really important to me. Mm. Just because that's the feeling that I get when I read something that I love. I wanted to, ha- to give that experience to somebody else. And the, book, the books I've done have sort of done that. But the, the, the graphic stuff that I've been doing, you know, 
instead of people saying, wow, that was great, or I really liked that in a kind of polite, um, you know, perfunctory way, I've gotten people telling me that they've wept, that they've felt something really deeply, that they've, wow, that awoke something in me, right? That kind of core emotional response mm-hmm. that I didn't get with just my words. And it's weird because the words to me seem to me so important. And it turns out that if you add a line and some color, it operates on a whole different level mm. in how it's consumed. Hmm. Do, is there a piece, you obviously, as you were telling that story, I always know in talking to clients, when they're expressing a feeling as strongly as that conversation hit you, that there is a conversation in your mind's eye that specifically, right, that, that somebody said it really hit them. Do you know specifically, and it's a chance to talk about some of these works that people could look at, Right. What piece was that that or, or your, your favorite representative? For sure. Work? I mean, I've done I've done now two since in 2017 this year, graphic essays that have come out. The first one, I think, was the one that really kind of pre- I had been working on a book about converting to Judaism. And it was a word picture piece um, kind of combination of of handwritten words and drawings. And I had the full manuscript and a full chapters done. And then this election happened. And I happened to be in Memphis on a book tour with a novel. And I was supposed to talk about householding and breadwinning and gender roles and all that. And it was two days after the election. I was in Memphis. And I was like hollowed out and just dumbfounded and really raw. And I, I was supposed to go to Graceland, but I ended up feeling like that was not going to be the right thing to do. So I went to the, uh, the Civil Rights Museum, and I followed the address, and I got to the, got to the place, and I got out, and I looked over, and there was no museum. It was a, uh, it was a hotel, and I was kind of confused, but I recognized the architecture a little bit, and I walked closer, and there was a wreath on the banister, and I realized this was the place where MLK was shot, and... You know, I think a lot of people had strong reactions in the days after the election, and that was the place where I had my strong reaction, and it just fell apart. Did you really? Um, Yeah, just standing on the sidewalk, 11 o'clock in the morning, just weeping. And I think it was, I mean, I thought a lot about why it was that moment. Um, It was the reminder that, you know, history goes backwards as well as forwards. And, you know, this is a, a... a deeply troubling time and we've had them before. Um, and then I went into the museum and there's this incredible story of people standing up to a establishment that, uh, was against them and sort of moral clarity. Um, and so for about two weeks after that, I was on this kind of civil rights tear, this bender of, I was just drawing mugshots in my journal you know, the mugshots of, yep. you know, all those freedom riders and the protesters who were down there and they're young and they're old and they're black and they're white and they're in their suits and they just have this unbelievable intensity and conviction and dignity and poise. And so I wrote and drew about that. And the uh, response to that was like, you know, and it took me a couple months to do. It came out around the inauguration. It came out actually in the same week of MLK's birthday and when John Lewis and Trump had their little Twitter mm-hmm. war. 
Um, and I just got a, a really, and I think part of the response that I was getting was all wrapped up in that. So I was kind of sharing a moment with people who are also feeling as conflicted and as, you know, uh, difficult. Right. Where did, where did that piece? It ran in a thing called fusion, which I had not heard of before, but a friend pointed me towards, they're doing a lot of political work. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, I mean, the kind of stuff that I want to do takes up a lot of real estate. So it's hard to figure out where to publish it. Um, the last piece I did, I did one uh, that just came out last week in a mm -hmm. magazine called Tablet. So it works online. I'd love for it to work on pages because I like to see this stuff in print. Um, so I'm hoping to do an, a book now about movements of the past and political change and the sort of civil rights story yeah. and how it applies to now. As, as a writer, you just made that point about internet versus online uh, versus the the printed paper Word. I was listening to uh, this uh, blogger, famous in the world of marketing, a guy named Seth Godin. Um, and Seth has, has written, I think he estimates 6,000 blog entries. He blogs every single day, mm -hmm. sethgodin.com, as a, as a small uh, unaffiliated plug, um, if you want to see that. But um, uh, somebody was asking him, and Debbie Millman was talking, the design guru on podcasts was talking to him about what that's like because he doesn't really do books that much anymore. And he says, it's good and it's bad. He says, it's good in that I get a lot more people because they're on the internet that are going to see my work and are going to be moved by my work. But he said, with a couple things going the wrong way, it could all be gone, right? With a server going down right. or something, and then it's just gone. Right. So I wonder, in a more general way, do you feel different conversing through your writing on the internet versus paper? I mean, it just, obsessed comments stuck in my head as you were telling your, your story, or does it yeah, feel I the mean, same? It, it, look, I, the, the, I'm both encouraged and discouraged. I'm encouraged by the fact that, um, you know, I read a lot on tablets and on my phone and on my screen, but the work of the people in this kind of micro genre that's not really graphic novels, that's not really picture books. There's a woman named Myra Kalman who's, she does a lot of stuff for The New Yorker. She wrote a book called The Principles of Uncertainty, which I've, is sort of my Bible. Um, and there's another woman named Wendy McNaughton up in San Francisco who does mm -hmm. these kind of illustrated journals. She has a, a, a cookbook out right now that's extraordinary. Um, they are books and they are, I, I would never look at them on a screen. You have to hold them. So I feel like this is a great place for someone who loves books to be because there's no way to, re I mean, you can do them. The, the, the screen versions that I've done, these graphic essays, are good on screen, but I think they'll be better in print. Got it. Um, so, you know, as things get more and more digital, it's great to be working in an analog space that can't be that well reproduced. Yeah. So let's make a, a transition to another topic that, I know you feel strongly about, and I, I certainly do, and, and that's being a dad. Um, a dad as conversationalist, okay? Meaning, um, you know, the whole thing, and I will, will come, I'll go on on other podcasts about it, but this notion of fundamental belief that I have that we can still help kids change. I have less hope for adults, Right. Just in terms of really changing their behaviors. But 
what are some efforts, especially from spending the amount of time that you've been fortunate enough, and I believe truly fortunate enough to spend with your kids as they've grown up, are there moments that come to mind, um, things that you've attempted to impart to them about connecting in the world and about interacting with others? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, my, all my three kids are so different and they're such individuals. And the one real truism that um, I can possibly offer from the ridiculously complicated world of dealing with these little humans is that they came in with their own marching orders. I mm. sort of feel like I could have screwed them up. And really, that's that's all I could have done. They were who they are. They are who they are. I have a, a really uh, scholarly, super thoughtful, very sensitive, um, kind of uber nerd. This is my <laughs> oldest. And then I have a very dramatic, very expressive, very sensitive, super talented, kind of uh, volatile girl. And then I have this incredibly confident, really um, physical... Uh, social, the least uh, neurotic person I know, who's an eleven-year-old, and I, 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 and the, what I mean is that I don't know that anything really that I can do is going to change fundamentally who they are. They are who they are. They came in as these people. Did you believe that from pretty much from the beginning of your career as dad, or is that mm. something you discovered? Did you try, in essence? To provide orders. I think they, they set me straight pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they really did. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think I can offer them kind of hacks, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> little lessons, you know, tip well. That's a big yeah, one. That's a huge one. <laughs> it's a huge one. Yeah. Never send a picture of your penis. I've sent that right. to that my kids know that. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I hope that they are willing and more, um, more generous with their, uh, their time with people they don't know because of my example. I mean, I think that the most that, that they can learn from me is how I am in the world, right? right? It's the example, not the, it's the show, not tell. Right. Um, and I do hope that like, I, I, I have told each of them, I think, kind of pointedly that I really hope that they're able to share the parts of themselves that they are less um, uh, proud of with others. I really feel like some of the best relationships I've developed have been based in a sense of vulnerability. Hmm. That when I'm honest with people about how screwed up I'm feeling, how nervous I am, how awkward I am, how sick I feel, how, how grief-stricken I might be, whatever it is, the yucky bits. Right. That, um, sharing that with someone who, you know, oversharing sometimes can actually create a, a, the kind of bond that really is helpful and useful and lasts longer than try to lead with a kind of false sense of bravado or right. confidence. Do you have any idea where you learned that? I don't know. Is that just something? I remember a friend of mine's a TV writer, and she got 
she was lucky enough to meet with um, Steven Spielberg for a project. And I was like, what was he like? <laughs> you know, I wanted to hear the full story. And she said, um, he's emotionally available. Mm. And I was, both of us were like, that is so much more impressive to me than, you know, showing off his Indiana Jones memorabilia or, you know, Schindler's List book or whatever it was. The fact that he was able to talk about the kind of shitty day he was having or how the problem he was having with us, he was just emotionally available. Hmm. And I, I I guess I was really struck by, okay, that's a goal Hmm. to really be honestly emotionally available with anyone you're with. And it, does it ever backfire? I'm sure it backfires if, I'm sure, I mean, it must backfire. I can't think of a a time right off the top of my head. Um, You know, and you you don't want to be emotionally available. Like if I have to pitch a a group of editors or if I have to, you know, and I'm having a shitty day, I don't want to lead with um, my discontent, right? So you got to be able to edit yourself. But at the same time, I think as a tactic, it's really um, just you can move through the world in a a lot more genuine way. Well, there's that when you said you don't want to share that in a pitch is you said that um, there's a a new book, a fairly new book last year called The Originals by a a professor from Wharton by the name of Adam Grant, wrote a book called Give and Take. And now he's written this other book with Sheryl Sandberg that's out now called Option B. He's an excellent writer. And his book about the originals would actu- actually was like advising people on how to pitch as a startup. And what he noticed and what he's actually studied is the patterns that emerge from the best pitches. And he found something so counterintuitive, and I was just thinking about it as you said what you said. He said, Somewhere soon in your pitch at the top, you should lead with something that didn't go right, that didn't go right mm. and what you did about it or what you will do about it in the future because it goes to your point about vulnerability. And when, when VCs in this world of Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach and all the rest, that they're looking for that to invest in because at the heart of it, we all invest in each other mm. based on, on like that. So I actually advise people to be, um, as you say, genuine and actually be proud of it. And what I take from your story is that idea is that that connects you in a deeper way than a perfectly worded, uh, you know, perfectly worded perfectly delivered um, friendship. And that, um, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, when I, I, as I said earlier, I I converted to Judaism uh, about a year ago. And while I was doing that, I was doing a lot of study and I was doing a little bit of shul shopping and I was going around talking to a lot of rabbis. And one of the things that really struck me was that the, the rabbis who got through to me the most and who seemed to be the most successful were the ones who talked about their struggle and their uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. It was these people who talked about how hard it was to confront some of the problems that we were all facing 
it wasn't, I mean, it's funny because I think that people in leadership positions think that they're supposed to give answers. And a lot of the time, what we're actually looking for is a reflection of our own struggle. Exactly. Exactly. There's a, there's a lot of research that backs that up that basically says no one truly takes on authentic or genuine leadership capabilities until they have failed. Mm. So you go back to Moses, you go back to, you know, you have the lisp, right? I mean, you go back all the way through, through real and created history of people who have emerged and it was all from a flaw. Right. And that is... The, and the yet we're living in this culture where the, 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 the emphasis is all on success. Yep. You know? Yep. And how do we... And, and to focus on success because success creates more success. And if you're confident, you, you know, the secret, all that, just yep. manifest and keep your eyes on the, on the thing you want to create. Right. I've, you know, it's, it's difficult to find that thread. Yep. I'm fine. It's so funny you talk about that, what to keep your eyes on. And I go back to your story of crying on the corner. Mm. Um, and a lot of clients, whether because of business climate or anything, um, can be fairly discouraged these days right? As we all can be. But I, I managed to dig up a clip of Bruce Springsteen singing Eyes on the Prize, right? Which was what King lived right. for. Right. And as long as you keep it in that longer view, and yeah. if you will, communicate in a, with a longer view, you're likely going to be able to get through most, if not anything. Right. So I don't know. I was, I was thinking yeah. about that as you were crying on the corner in <laughs> Memphis. So so uh, let's end. You, you mentioned earlier not taking a picture of your penis, which I appreciate that advice once again. But to a 17-year-old boy, that's key To a 17-year-old boy, right. And, 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 and letting your daughter have perspective on, on that as well. It's something <laughs> I've dealt with with my two girls. Um, but let's go to the other piece of writing that I know you did this notion of convert, converting to Judaism. Uh, and all that you've been through. And I'd, I'd want you to tell, because I started to read about it as I prepared for this, talk about that, the title and the story. Uh, on <laughs> you, you, really, you want to hear about my penis, about don't you? Your, about what they, <laughs> what they wanted to do, right? Okay, so what there's the, three, yeah, there's three requirements to convert. Um, you have to go before a bet dean, three rabbis, usually three, sometimes more. Um, this is like defending your thesis. They have to, you know... <laughs> quiz you on some knowledge and, and your genuine desire. Then you got to do um, a mikvah, so you get dunked in the Jewish jacuzzi. And then you have to be circumcised. And that applies to all men, you know, even those who were like me, not that you asked, already circumcised. They that want was your my blood. next question, yeah, yeah. but so I you knew get, that. You have to get pricked, and they all demand it. Um, even, the ref even the groovy reform guys make you get pricked. Uh, and that, for, I'd known that for a long time. I married my wife uh, almost 20 years ago and thought about conversion at that time just because it would have been made it easier for the kids, but there were all kinds of issues. Didn't do it. And in, partly because I was just thought, this is a bizarre tribal right. The prick part. The prick part. It's yeah, nuts. This is a Seinfeld episode, right? I'm sorry. It's yes. It's the obvious one that comes to mind, right? Is it's, there a Seinfeld about oh, a guy who gets pricked? Oh, go home, go home, and, and or you don't even have to go home. Pull up the Moyle episode okay. and how Kramer struggles with the whole notion and Kramer what he wants it. to do to, to I remember, to I've it. been told about an a, a episode about a, oh, a, a guy who, gets, who converts so that he can tell jokes about Jews. Do you know about As this one? Played by... 
Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston. That's right. Um, so anyway, there you so are anyway, avoiding. So I avoided it for a long time, but I ended up sort of, I have three kids. They went to Jewish school. I started doing Judaism. I started like we would do Shabbat. I would um, go to services occasionally and just hanging out and reading like Heschel and thinking about the tradition and just basically getting what I could from the tradition without identifying. And at a certain point, and I really do still feel quite strongly that that, you know, 15 some years of doing without being taught me something really powerful. Um, about, you know, to me, obviously, obviously there are incredibly righteous and uh, exemplary atheists and Muslims and Catholics and Protestants and, you know, maybe not so much Scientologists, but anyway, hmm. there are all kinds of really righteous people I would seek to emulate <laughs> and they are not all Jewish and, and nobody has the answer, but the, the deeds are what matter to me, right? It's the, are you leading a good life? Are you right. making the world better than when you found it? Are you, you know, contributing, um, and what does the tradition offer you to help you to get there? Mm. So like I found that there were things about Judaism that I could reinterpret and do. I started uh, unplugging between Friday night and Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the process of Yom Kippur and just uh, the, the traditions had, when, when reinterpreted and, and thought through and enacted in fresh ways felt really powerful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doing, being, and then at a certain point I was like, you know what? I just want to be, I want to go to the next question. Got it. Um, so I went through the, the, now who does that? Letting. Who does that? It used to be done, uh, on the high priest in the temple, right? Of course. Now, at least in the circles that I travel in, it's a guy named Dr. Andy. He's a urologist. He's a moonlighting moil. He's out in Calabasas. Mm-hmm. Um, my appointment was at 9.30 on a Thursday night. Who which went with you? My wife. Your wife. It's nice go to this her. tract house. Especially after those bad shoes she bought you. Yeah. Was, yeah. Anyway. So we go out to this tract house and he lets us in and we go down to his office and that's like right next to his laundry room where his sneakers are in the dryer going, it's like a drug deal. It really felt like a drug deal. And we go into his home office and they're talking and... I realized that I could not hear any words coming oh. out of people's mouths because of what was about to happen. Cause I knew it was, and I would just like in raw panic. And then he, you know, he puts on these surgical gloves and takes out a little lancet. And, um, I took down my pants and I got super self-conscious because I was wearing striped underwear mm-hmm. and that felt entirely too festive for the moment. Right? Totally. Hadn't thought that through. Mm. Um, and then he does some Hebrew prayers and there's a little snap and it's over. It's not that big a deal. It's sort of like a, you know, moderate day at the dentist. Got it. Wow. There's no, like, he doesn't give you any uh, topical or anything. Didn't. And then we went for Chinese. Right. Which felt incredibly Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. It was good. I was going to ask a question about Chinese and Calabasas, but that's. <laughs> no, no, we had that, to go to no, San Gabriel Valley. That's it was a long even drive. Better. Long even drive. Even better. Well, I just could not let that. And so you wrote about it. That I wrote story, about it. That story's in print. Yes, that story's from, in print. Okay. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I illustrated, and I'm illustrating it. And then just all those 
sort of associated lessons about doing and being and religious observance and sort of, um, it's a spiritual memoir. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But I, even saying those words makes me want to cringe. And again, like at this particular moment, I don't feel like it's time to talk about my spiritual memoir. There, you know, the house is burning down, people. Got it. Does it, real feel, does it really feel like that to you? It does. It does. This feels like a really historic moment. So what do you feel as, a, as, as we, as they say in Temple, as I begin to conclude here? Uh-huh. Um, given that the house is burning, another one of my friends referred to it as the apocalypse. There's some fairly strong language going on here. What, can, what do you hope that people who you care about, uh, what do you hope they do? Well, first of all, I really hope I'm wrong. And I hope that the people who are panicking right now are just being a little hysterical. You know, I hope we look back in five years and just say, oh boy, that was scary. And it's just, it's, it mm-hmm. turned out okay. And I'm encouraged by the fact that this guy who seemed like could be ushering in a new era of sort of Nazism turns out to be really bad at being bad. Mm-hmm. You know, he's mm-hmm. pretty inept. Yes. <laughs> So I'm hopeful that he's going to bumble his way through not getting done all these horrible things he wants to get done and we'll be okay. However, you know, I, I think that it's very hard to concentrate on anything but kind of preserving basic civil liberties and the health of the planet right now. Yeah. I I think we have to keep all hands on deck to kind of just protect. Right. I'm, I'm tempted in picking guests for the show to get somebody who's going to come up with a viable explanation of how he's going to pull off what he had hoped for, because so far he has failed on so many levels. If you look at the budget and this, when we're taping this, the budget came out last week and he didn't touch Planned Parenthood. He didn't, he didn't get a brick for the wall. It goes on and on. Is it so far, speaking of communication issues, he is the one who has gotten in his own way, which we often do in conversation. We are the ones who cause, we, the individual, are the ones who cause our own effectiveness most often. And A, accepting that, which he doesn't, uh, and B, working on that, which he clearly doesn't if you watch him continue to try to read a teleprompter. Um, he, he's dropping the ball consistently on key political rhetoric and communication moments that he needs to get through the reality of how hard politics is. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm more optimistic than, than, than you're sounding as I watch him, as you say, be bad at being bad. Um, it's it's a, a fascinating time to watch that. So thank you for, for sharing at least one view. And, um, and most importantly, thank you for sitting in today. Um, as I said, we just put this together last week and uh, I've met you a few times, but... Uh, this was really cool of you to do. Happy and, to do uh, it. I, and I appreciate it. And there'll be more, obviously, that you've heard about ways to any, anything, any place where people can go to, to look at the latest stuff. Tell me about that. Sure. Well, I have a website, of course, <laughs> you know, ChristopherKnoxon.com. And uh, I, you know, update that with uh, pictures. And then the book is plus one. It's out in paperback. It looks really great. It has drawings in it. And you should read it. Nice. 
I, I've already <laughs> and go to the tablet. By the way, I read the tablet one this morning. Yeah, that came out uh, last week. It's about it's uh, the cool. immigration crisis and about uh, Syrians. But it's a comic, so it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. And it's, yeah, it's easy to read. Easy to read. Easy to read. Thank well, you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate Thanks. it.